Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. There is a program on Netflix, and Netflix, boy, I remember the days of ABC, NBC, and CBS, and no cable TV. Well, Netflix is, people will oftentimes, especially young people, will talk about following things on Netflix, watching things on Netflix, and not watching things on regular TV, and God forbid if you'd ever sit through a commercial. Well, right now, there is a program, a series, and I suppose it's kind of debuted this time of the year with Halloween and Halloween and how it's, despite the fact it's All Hallows Eve, traditionally understood as the feast, uh, the eve of All Hallows Eve, that is of the Feast of All Saints, is, um, especially in America, more focused on ghosts and goblins and things like that. And there is a program called Midnight Mass. It's a several part series. It is on Netflix. And joining us now to speak about that is Stephen Gradanis, who is the creator of Decent Films and the film critic for the National Catholic Register. He's also a member of the New York Film Critics Circle and a permanent deacon in the Archdiocese of Newark, New Jersey. He also hosts Real Faith with David DeSerto. Visit him at decentfilms.com. David, welcome back to the program. Hi, it's good to be here. Day, uh, I'm wondering, Stephen, I have heard something. Uh, I spoke to a colleague here at Ave Maria Radio, and he says, wow, it's very compelling television. It really keeps your attention, the Midnight Mass. There's some concerns about how the Eucharist and, and, and vampire and blood and all that, maybe it's not completely <laughs> what you expect, uh, not necessarily a, a, a clear Catholic witness on Netflix. But what would you say about why this is such a compelling series, and also the Catholic themes that it deals with. So, um, the one of the main characters in the story is a Catholic priest, and the story takes place on a small island that is full of a uh, uh, full of people who are either uh, with varying degrees of devoutness Catholic. Mm. Um, Catholic theology, Catholic ideas, uh, Catholic language is referenced constantly throughout this Netflix miniseries. And um, although it's certainly not what, I mean, I wouldn't call it pro-Catholic per se, I would say that Midnight Mass um, gives a fair shake to its Catholic characters. Um, the, there are, uh, in, in, there's a, a range of, of different beliefs that are represented. One of the major characters, uh, Riley, who's a false, former altar boy, is now an atheist, and he argues passionately against the idea of God. Um, but other characters uh, who are also portrayed as sympathetic um, and, and in, in positive ways are, um, are, are devout. And, um, and, you know, so often in, on the screen, Catholicism is depicted as equivalent with weirdness mm. or, or, uh, creepiness. And, and just to see a positive depiction of Catholic characters engaged in, you know, in, once you take, bracketing the, the vampire weirdness of the series, fairly ordinary parish life. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the way that we see the Mass portrayed is, is fairly similar to what many of us experience on Sunday mornings. And to see that portrayed in a, in a, in a more or less non-judgmental way, I think, is, is a positive experience for many Catholic viewers. Michael Flanagan, who's behind the project, he grew up Catholic. He's also a recovering alcoholic. He served as an altar boy at one point. How much do you think that this is his own biography or or seeing through the lens in part? He seems to have a respect for the Church and yet has some difficulties with the Church based upon his upbringing. 
Flanagan has talked about having a healthy Catholic upbringing, so he doesn't bring bitterness toward the Church. The character of Riley, to a certain extent, does mirror both his religious trajectory and his experience with um, uh, with alcoholism and recovery. One of the important differences is that for Riley, his wake-up call was a fatal car crash in which he accidentally killed a young woman and sent him to prison for four years. And that did not happen to Flanagan, but he did talk about how uh, he was afraid of that constantly, that that would be the thing that would happen, and that was part of what spurred him toward recovery. So... Um, I mean, the fact that he is now an atheist, I think, certainly colors the overall portrayal. And in particular, I think it comes out in the way that vampirism, uh, and, and there is a, a creature in the movie, a, a, de- a definite vampire, um, um, is, is seen, I think, in the lens of the show, fundamentally in a naturalistic light. And this mm. is the interesting thing about Catholicism and horror in many religious horror stories, there's a kind of implicit argument from the reality of evil to the existence of goodness. If there's a devil, there must be a god. Mm-hmm. And that not only does that move not happen here, nobody even uses the language of evil or the demonic to describe the demon, which or to describe the vampire, I mean to say, which, which seems to me to be something of a truncation of the portrayal of the Catholic culture in the story. And in discussing these Catholic themes, uh, we might, spoiler alert, get into some details if you, uh, just to let people know, but I understand that Monsignor Pruitt and then the young father Paul Hill are a little bit more related than people might think, at least at the beginning. Could you get into that? This is something of a spoiler, and so we should definitely <laughs> warn people. Uh, to, you may want to turn off your radios for the next 30 seconds or so. But yeah, so uh, Monsignor Pruitt, elderly Monsignor Pruitt, goes off on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, where he gets lost literally on the road to Damascus, hmm. and he uh, stumbles into a recently exposed underground chamber and encounters this creature who sucks his blood and then revives him to his former youthful self. Understandably, given his um, uh, miraculous recovery, he sees this horrific bat-winged creature as an angel, Mm, and he brings Michael or somebody. (laughs) Yeah. He brings his angel back to Crockett Island and hopes to share the miracle with others. That's understandable for him, but when you see the mix of people at the Easter Vigil Mass, including the very suspicious Muslim sheriff um, and and other people, um, as this bat-winged creature is revealed at the front of the church and Father Pruitt is saying, he's, he's raving about the angel, nobody says... (laughs) <laughs> that thing has dot wings. It's a demon. I mean, it just, it, I, I, it seems to me that there's, there's a, a missing religious dimension here in the, la- in the absence of the language of evil. Are, when they're saying that, is it just that they can't see it or, or they're just, with regard to this, this angelic being or this vampire is looking, this isn't an angel. I mean, does he look ugly or is it somebody that they just don't see it or how is that? Oh, no, no. He's completely visible to everyone. Okay. Um, 
Um, he's the, the phenomenon is is engaged for the most part from a quasi scientific perspective. The character of Dr. Sarah Gunning, who was apparently raised Catholic but now is religiously it's un- unclear which, what, what her beliefs are, mm. but her worldview is fundamentally scientific, and so she's almost like a Van Helsing character. Mm-hmm. She describes what's happening on the island in terms of the spread of a virus. Um, she describes the uh, vampiric sensitivity to sunlight in terms of the na- the actual condition, uh, the medical condition of some people who are extremely photosensitive and whose skin burns very easily in sunlight. She says this might be a more form. So we have this scientific vocabulary that's used to describe um, the vampire, but when it comes to religious vocabulary, the only person who applies religious vocabulary is Father Paul, who calls the vampire an angel. And, and so this language of evil is missing, and I think that is, um, uh, is, is an important um, uh, missing element in the story. Speaking of elements, I understand and, and, and fill this in or react as, as you will that people, great things start happening, but it's not because of the Eucharist per se. It's because the blood that Father Paul is admixing with the precious blood and they unwillingly don't know that this is from the vampire and good things are at least, uh, at least initially happening. So there's kind of an ambiguity. Some of you think, well, my goodness, why is this? <laughs> You'd expect it to be the Eucharist to be a miracle, but at least uh, going forward to the movie, the, the series, that it's, it's the vampire blood that's bringing about the good. Bringing about the good, but, but not without uh, a cost to pay. So this mm. is one of the interesting things. You're dealing here with a dying community, a, a former fishing community that's fallen on hard times, and obviously a dying parish. And so when this dynamic young Father Paul appears, and then miracles start happening, it's very natural that people should be thinking in terms of revival and, and uh, an age of miracles. Who wouldn't want that as you mm-hmm. watch your community dying, and then you see... For instance, a young girl who's been in a wheelchair ever since an accident that crippled her, now she can walk, and and other people are experiencing benefits. But very importantly, there's a woman central to the story, Erin, who is pregnant, and she's very happy about her baby. Um, she talks about uh, about the baby, the coming baby, all the time, and the role that her unborn child has played in her life, uh, how it set her on a better course. And then one day, the pregnancy is just gone. Mm. Not she doesn't have a miscarriage. It's gone like it never existed. Mm. So this is this is an anti miracle that turns out to be associated with the vampire blood, and I find this very significant because the pregnancy offers a positive counterpoint to the imagery of parasitism that otherwise runs through the story. Mm. You know, um, um, uh, the the writer-director uh, has, has talked about how, as, as a boy, uh, Mike Flanagan, when he was a boy reading uh, horror stories about vampires, you know, he maybe ask the obvious question to his parents as Catholics: If we're drinking Jesus' blood in order to live forever, doesn't that make us vampires mm. and, or cannibals? <laughs> right. 
Um, but, but, and, and then later you also have a scene where Riley is critiquing the Catholic Church and he talks about churches growing up like little ticks, fat little ticks mm. in poor communities, yeah. you know, kind of leeching the economic um, reserves from people who need them more. And so you have this imagery of dependence, which is always kind of parasitic and negative, the vampire, the ticks, the churches in Riley's interpretation. But then counter to that, you have this imagery of pregnancy. And this is a joyful, beautiful, healthy thing. One life depending on that of another person who is eagerly, happily giving of herself to sustain that other life. And that, to me, opens up a space for an understanding of the Eucharist as something that is also joyful and beautiful, that our Lord gives himself to us willingly. This is not something gross or horrible like vampirism. Um, And so, and I, I think that that is... I think that that is deliberate on Flanagan's part, that he has woven in this ambiguity to allow us to interpret the Eucharist either as something more like vampirism or like something natural and beautiful. And correct me if I'm wrong here, we just got a little over a minute left, is the vampirism, is it only after she takes the vampire blood that she loses the child? Yes, exactly. So, so there's so the, the parasitic thing there. Is the, it, it's kind of like an addiction of sorts. Uh, it starts off as a great high, but it uh, doesn't, get you very, doesn't get you for the long run, so to speak. Yeah, that's exactly right. There is a, um, the, the vampirism um, um, it does not allow uh, um, Erin to be physically giving of herself to her child. Mm. Um, it, it distro- because, because really the vampirism is a kind of anti-life. Wow. Um, and, and so in Aaron's case, it turns out to be an anti-miracle. Wow. I guess people can, can tune into Midnight Mass. I understand it's got some rough language, but no nudity. So obviously, and some, obviously with blood, there's going to be blood with vampires, right? But a little bit of a disclaimer on that one, huh? There's, there's definitely some intense vampire violence, and, and it is hard to watch in places. But I enjoyed it, and if you are open to horror and you're interested in the, over, in the inter- overlap between Catholicism and horror, I would recommend checking it out. Thank you very much, Stephen. As always, coming on Press in the Afternoon. Follow him at decentfilms.org.com and dot also com. Dot com, decentfilms.com and the Natural Catholic Register, Stephen Gridonis. Thank you.